Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode of the Jack Eason Podcast. We are talking about the issues of loneliness, isolation, and how to overcome them with true friendship and community. For more information on these and other issues, check out Jack's website at jackeason.org. Now here's Jack. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Haw, who is a professor at uh, the University of Kansas. And I came across, I guess what got us connected, uh, Dr. Hall, I'm, I'm working on a book that will come out a little bit later. Uh, really, the issue that I wanted to tackle was let's do community and do life together. But when I started investigating, I found out how lonely we as a culture are and then came across an article that uh, I think it's been published across the Internet in four or five, six different places that you wrote some time ago uh, just about um, friendships. I know the school maybe put it out first and then it hit other places like Market Watch and um, some other places on- online. But one of the things I really thought was interesting uh, was what you said about how long it really takes to form friendships. And uh, why do you think this whole issue of, of, of establishing friendships is so difficult given our culture today? What, why is it difficult to make friends this day and age? Yeah, what, what makes it so hard? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of demands on our time uh, that didn't, weren't always there. Um, for example, we know that people are spending more time working, uh, more time commuting. Um, we also have community uh, that are less sort of focused on a central kind of meeting space or a shared space, whether that be a church or a park or, uh, you know, some sort of community downtown space. Instead, people will kind of travel far and wide to go to those places to, you know, take their kids to soccer practice or to uh, a lot of people don't actually go to um, places like church as much as they used to. So I think that the thing is, is not only are, are there demands on our time that make it difficult to actually go out and meet people, but it also is the case that there aren't as many sort of public meeting spaces to meet people and see them over and over again, which allows for kind of a development of a relationship. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And you are, I know, uh, still the uh, one of the professors of communications there at the university, right? Yeah, communication studies, that's correct. Okay, and, and you did a survey uh, or a study, I guess. I want you to tell us a little bit about it on where you surveyed a, a, and studied a, a good amount of people, I guess, and determined that it took, uh, if I'm remembering my numbers, you correct me here, uh, 40 to 60 hours to make like a casual friend. 80 to 100 hours for just a general friendship, and, and if you really wanted to have a good friendship, a couple hundred hours or more. Tell us a little bit about the study yeah, and, and, and what you did and how you kind of came to these conclusions. Yeah, so the study really is about when people develop brand new friends, and it's actually very difficult if you haven't had kind of a, a moment that separates now and before to be able to remember when you met somebody. So the first of the two studies that's within the published results focused on 355 Americans who had relocated in the last six months. These are people who picked up and moved across the country for some reason. Mm. Most of them did so for work. Uh, Some did so for school and to be close to family, divorce, things like that. But there's a a variety of reasons that people might have moved. And so once they moved, I found out, name somebody who you've met since you've moved, someone brand new and, and not a romantic partner, not somebody who you knew beforehand, not an old friend you're reconnecting with, not a family member, but someone really truly new that you've met before, since you've moved. And then I asked basically, you know, how long ago did you move? When did you meet this person after you arrived? And how many weeks have you known him? And then the last question really focused in on how much time you spend on them in any given week. So 
I ask people to estimate in the last week, how much time did you spend with this new person? And then on a typical week, since you've met them, how much time do you spend with them? Mm. And then ask a series of questions about how close you were to this person and, um, you know, where you knew them and what were the context you spend and how you spent that time together. The second study was on KU freshmen, so people who had just come to the University of Kansas, 112 freshmen, and did a very similar thing. Uh, but what was better was that these people had only been at KU for three weeks by the time that I asked them to fill out the information the very first time. And they identified two people who they met since they arrived and then scaffolded out that kind of time so that we followed up again at six weeks and again at nine weeks to sort of look at the trajectory of growth of those relationships. Mm. So then I combined the results of both of these studies and came up with the estimates that you mentioned. And these are really not like uh, like sufficient conditions. They're more like necessary conditions, if you want to think of it that way. So a sufficient condition would be that if you spent 40 to 60 hours with somebody, then voila, you have a friend. Right. You just know that that's not the case. That's not how it works. But it's a necessary condition in the sense that it seems to be the case that without spending that kind of time, people tend to not move into that next stage of friendship. I found it very interesting, for example, that in both studies, people very rarely spent more than 30 hours with somebody they would call an acquaintance. Mm. So what happens is, is you meet somebody and you just don't spend any extra time with them. You never uh, seek them out for contact or otherwise. Then it just kind of stays at that very low level of relationship development, but also a low level of time. You know, you you mentioned, I, I think, again, this is something I saw that you had said. I know a lot of people would attribute the use of social media to this disconnect with friends, having friends or not having friends. How are you seeing that played out? Uh, did you see that played out in the studies that you did? And, and how do you, or do you see it played out there at the, on the campus of the university with, with this age uh, generation that's all into technology? Is that is that a contributing factor? You know, that's a very big debate right now. There are lots and lots of people all over the country, all over the actually entire world, combing data to try to answer the question that you're asking. And I would say that the evidence is really not conclusive to say that social media is a causal factor, right? And what I mean by that is it doesn't seem to be the case that time you spend on social media directly takes away from time that you would spend developing friendships or that time you spend on social media directly takes away from time you might spend calling your mom from campus if you're a student or you know hanging out with your friends uh, over a drink or something like that like that that does not seem to be the case at all um, the other thing that doesn't seem to be the case is it doesn't seem to be the case that there is a direct trade-off between people who use social media and people who are social face-to-face in mm-hmm. fact those two things are tend to be more likely to be correlated meaning Social people are social in a lot of ways, and we've known that from instant messenger and the rise of texting, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago. And also before that, when people use Internet for chat rooms and otherwise, it was always the case that the most social people tended to be social in multiple different domains. Mm-hmm. So I personally don't I, I don't believe that social media is the causal reason that people are spending uh, less time together if it is indeed the case that they are. Right, right. What what do you think are some of the things that are keeping, uh, preventing people from engaging in the kind of friendships that will prevent loneliness and, and build community? I know that one of the statistics that I came across, uh, and, and makes sense, I guess, about loneliness, for example, uh, it, uh, it mentioned several categories of people. One was one that we would both expect, which is widowed elderly people who have lost their yeah. mate after 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, and now they're alone. But the, but the most, uh, the biggest, largest group of people identified in some of the studies I've seen that deal with loneliness are the millennials or those, you know, in, coming into college, leaving college. Uh, are there any 
contributing factors that you're seeing that are making them more isolated and insulated as a, as a group of people? Well, so the issue here is, you know, I, I think that the reasons that people aren't spending time together are on, there are kind of big picture reasons. And then there are kind of small, more nuanced reasons. So mm. the big picture reasons for people being less together include the idea that the you know, Americans are more, uh, the things that I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, people are commuting longer, working longer hours, taking on multiple jobs. And a lot of things just prevent you like that, right? Mm -hmm. Time spent commuting and working, you can't spend with people who you would choose to spend with, whether it be your family or be your friends. So there's kind of big level trends that are going on there. And I think the other part is geographic issues, right? So if you have to drive a long way from work to home, or your work is separated from your home in a substantial way, and you're also driving another 45 minutes to take the kids to soccer practice or you know, basically keeping outside your house, but mainly in the car to get to other places, it's really not creating opportunities for interaction with anybody. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that's a major sort of big picture issue on a, a more micro level. The reason that people aren't prioritizing spending time with one another is I think they just don't make it a priority in their life. I don't think that people tend to think to themselves, you know what, I should have a, on my list of things to do, make time to spend with my friends. Um, I, I, I don't think people do that because that they think it's awkward. I think that they think they're acting needy when they ask people mm -hmm. to spend time with them. I think they feel like it's kind of weird as an adult to want to spend time with other people. And I, all of those reasons, unfortunately, contribute to a perception that we, sh we either are awkward or weird if we need friends, which is totally not true, or that people on the other side wouldn't like to be invited. I think it absolutely is the case that a good portion of people, with, if they're given a chance to go out with someone, would like to do so, you know. Being invited to do things with someone is oftentimes a really nice invitation of, you know, says that you're a quality person that someone would want to be around. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are personal reasons that we don't do it. And those personal reasons, once you get past the big factors, are really about, I think, about awkwardness, about priority. And priority and awkwardness feed each other so that if you're not making it a priority, then it becomes more awkward to catch up with somebody who you like to catch up with. Because right. then it's been a month, you know, five months, six years, 10 years before you talk mm. to them again. Right, right. Do you do you think um, uh, some of the things I've I've come across talk about creating trust in the relationship, vulnerability? Do you think that that is an issue with the millennials and younger generation? That issue of trusting someone that they can be transparent enough to have the level of relationship that they would really like to have, but then there's the risk factor of okay, if I have to be you know, open up enough with this person to have that kind of relationship. Is that a part of the dynamic in this generation more so than older generations, you think, or no? Well, that's a tough one. You know, I think the thing is we're seeing a lot of different norms that are changing at the same time. So you are right that very deep levels of friendship require trust and vulnerability. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that all friendship requires that. You know, I have a lot of friends who I hang out with on a more superficial level. You know, we just kind of talk about people we knew from high school and talk about our jobs and our kids and we laugh and joke around and sometimes we go play pool and sometimes we go have a drink and you know i, I don't know that there's a whole heck of a lot of vulnerability going on sure. in those environments right but certainly a lot of fun I, i'm having a grand time you know when i was on a, a softball team similar thing right i mean the number of in-depth conversations i had with people during that three years i was playing softball on a team uh was probably zero like i think i had no deep conversations so I, first is, is I think we have to distinguish between different types of relationships here. Really deep, close, vulnerable, trusting friendships are really reserved for like one person in your life. Maybe if you're lucky, 
uh, you know, that one person's different, right? You, you have that person for your whole life, or you can make that new person several times, right? Mm-hmm. So that place is occupied by different people at different stages of your life. Um, but really, we do not have that kind of deep relationship with that many friends. Uh, now, we have that with our partner, our parents, our kids sometimes, but, no, but not with our friends. So I think the piece here that kind of keep in mind is that if it were a change, then the change of, of trust or vulnerability would need to be focused on those things for young adults. And I wouldn't say that that's, there's evidence to that. You know, I think there's a lot of things people talk about related to the millennial and the, the new generation that's after that, um, which I think is Y or Z. I can't even remember. Right. But there's one more generation that's post-millennial. And I don't, I don't hear that people are saying that those folks are less trustworthy or that they're less vulnerable. Um, I, you know, I do hear that there are issues around loneliness and anxiety but a lot of that is a question of broader social trends again. You know, I think this is actually a very anxious time that we live in. Mm-hmm. People feel uh, very worried about climate change and national politics. And if kids feel worried about whether they're not going to get into college when they're 10 years old and parents are putting a lot of pressure on them to learn the violin and speak 16 languages so they can get a, some sort of scholarship. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it is a very anxiety producing time for kids. Right. So I, I think to think to think that it's either social media's fault or that they don't have legitimate reasons to be anxious, I think are kind of missing the point. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. What What do you What would you suggest to a college student who is struggling with this issue of loneliness? What are some practical tips uh, or suggestions that you've seen working there on the university campus that could help somebody begin to get engaged and not be isolated, but begin to form those relationships? Yeah, right. I mean, college is perfect environment for meeting new people. You are surrounded by thousands of people who are all interested in the same thing of developing friendships, developing relationships of a lot of different types. There are student groups who are actively promoting members constantly. And those student groups run from, you know, uh, we have like a, uh, a Quidditch team here at the KU campus, and we have people who play Mario Smash together, and we have people who are in fraternities and sororities and sports teams. And, wow intramural teams and bowling teams and i mean you name it if you have any interest in anything there are people who want you to come and hang out and in fact the student groups membership when they have more people coming and showing up then those student groups continue to get funded in the future too so there's a reason from uh you know the activities point of view of the college university programming committees to keep funding well attended events and activities so Mm -hmm. i think that college students you know this is this is really critical that you just show up you know you'll be surrounded by people if you go for an interest that you share with people who share your interest and chances are that these are people who would prefer that you continue to come like they they would like for you to show up and i mean i'll go back to my own softball team example i was not good at softball but people really appreciate the fact that i never missed a game because we needed 10 people to play it right That's awesome. That's awesome. What uh, what what are you seeing there on the college campuses um, as far as this whole issue of loneliness? I was talking to someone else the other day, and they said that uh, they're they're serving on a on a university campus as well. They said ten years ago, the question that they were hearing. Uh, from students who were getting ready to graduate were questions like, oh, or excitement about, oh, I'm going to have a family and what should I be looking for in a mate and, you know, where should I live and I'm excited about this career. Should I choose this or should I choose that? Um, but on this particular campus, the person was telling me the number one thing that he hears now is, can you just tell me how to make friends? 
Um, are you seeing something yeah. similar there on the on the university campus? It's very interesting. I th- I, I want to say that I saw that in one of the articles or radio shows that I was on about this too. Like that that quote um, as a change in what this college counselor was talking about. I, mm. I, I saw that too, and I'm, I can't remember where I saw that, but um, you know, I don't know. I, I think the thing is is one thing to keep that I think we also got to keep in mind about this too. And, and this is just, I, I don't know the context in which that quote comes up. I don't quite fully appreciate um, what that person's talking about in mm. terms of their experience with student, with supporting students. That said, I will say that we are more sensitive at the University of Kansas and I imagine other universities to issues of mental health, um, issues of isolation and first year college experience than I think we've ever been. You know, when I went to college in the 90s, I didn't get contacted by anyone about anything like that. Like there were, if I, if I had severe challenges that I was facing, I'd probably turn to the people around me or my mm-hmm. parents. Right. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't turn to the administrating the administrators or support bodies to do that. But it is the case here at the university of Kansas and other universities that they're actively creating an infrastructure to support students, mental health and well-being. And, and personally speaking, I say that's fantastic. You know, we, we need to provide supports for, uh, of various types for students who are encountering all kinds of stressors from more severe around, you know, potential suicide ideation to more light, I think, comparatively light concerns such as, you know, I'm, I feel like I don't have enough friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's all wonderful. That said, if you create an infrastructure that has people feel like they can talk to you about it, you may get the perception that everybody's a lot more isolated than they used to be. But back in the day, you know, people weren't telling an administrator about it. They were just kind of moping around, you know. Right, <laughs> they right. They may not be happy about it or they're like, oh, I wish I had more friends. Or they call their high school friends and be like, oh, college sucks. I can't meet new people or, you know, maybe talking to their parents about it. So I think we have to remember there's a, again, I don't know the context. Maybe it is true that there's good empirical evidence that there's been a change in that question. You know, um, how do I make a friend for uh, new college students than there was in the past? But I, I personally wonder whether or not it's a selection bias or a reporting bias problem rather right. than a real significant. Right. Right. Yeah. There is uh, I guess part of a New York times article that I saw where they had quoted you, uh, um, about the need for uh, low stakes, casual friendships. Um, do you, do you think part of the reason too is maybe that millennials and the next generation are putting pressure on themselves that every relationship has to be, you know, phenomenal, uh, this person would give their life for me. You know, is it, is it, we just can't even have a normal casual friendship anymore. I don't, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think people actually have normal casual friendships all the time. I, one thing, because I study this stuff, I'm always having my eyes watching out and people watching. I, I was a people watcher before I did this project, but, um, you know, when I look around, I think, yeah, there's students walking around with their phones in their hand and looking at it or some listening to music while they walk around campus. But I would say there's still a majority of students with none of those things. And they're just talking to their friends and saying hi and moving around, going to class to class. Mm. You know, there are a lot of folks are actually very, and I think in a healthy way, managing their phone contact, uh, you know, their mobile contact in the sense that, you know, right after class, they put it, they open it back up, they check what's going on with their messages, they check what their next thing. And you got to remember, like, their calendar is there. Yes. Their money is there. Their communication with other people is there. Like, it's not like the phone is only because of some sort of socially isolating a- a- agent. It is also a informational mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. It has a lot of functions. 
So then they go around and then they talk to people as they walk around, like, or they sit and they wait for class and they look at their phone for a while. But so what, you know, in the past they were sitting there and looking at their notes or reading a magazine. I mean, I don't, I don't believe that there's a substantial difference in that kind of behavior. So I think that I will tell you that I can tell by the tenor of your questions that um, people are extraordinarily concerned about this. And I don't, I don't want to minimize that concern. Right. I think what I want to do is I want to point to the kinds of things that I think people are upset about rather than to suggest that it's a simple solution of media. Um, so what I mean by that is that I do believe that we live in a time that has a lot of built-in financial, personal insecurities, you know, and, and cataclysmic frightening ones mm-hmm. like, like climate change, like the political uh, atmosphere, like a feeling that there are always um, th- there's an intense amount of division and upset between us. And I believe that people are working longer hours and are commuting longer and are going to places like church less. So what's happening is they don't have regular social worlds in which that make them feel secure and ontologically oriented. Like w- what is the meaning of life and where am I going? Right. To me, if I was to say, would that make sense that millennials and then and the generation that is coming after them would feel deeply insecure about their place in the world? Yes, yes absolutely. Yes, yes. And do 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 they turn to social media to try to help ameliorate that or ameliorate that stress to minimize it or to perhaps manage it? Yes, they turn to social media to try to check in, to learn, to understand one another in that environment because they do feel they do feel anxious and they do feel lonely, but. I don't, I do think, (laughs) so while I do think that people are spending less time with each other, I think that there's evidence that adolescents and adults spend less face time with each other. And I do think that that is a concern. And I do think that loneliness is a concern. I'm not convinced that media is to blame. Right, right. Well, no, and I'm with you. And I think, um, you know, the the easy uh, solution, uh, simple, simple solution, maybe not easy, simple solution is what you talked about earlier, and that is community. Um, you know, yeah. I, I think we are created to have community and it can be community at different levels, but engagement with human beings, you know, flesh and uh, blood, flesh and blood and talking conversations and, and devices may play into that just because of culture. But I think uh, with with community and you mentioned a lot of different ways to, to do community, whether it's going to the park or to church or I, I think our culture just kind of pushes us uh, away from from those types of community for some reason. Yeah. And I think that they, I think it, I'll put it this way. It makes it extremely inconvenient. Yes. Yes. So the, I think the, I think the pushes are there, but I would also say that it is now a deep inconvenience to be able to spend time with each other and who are people who are outside your home. Right. And sometimes even the people in your home, because if you're in the car, you're not seeing them either. <laughs> right. That's right. But that's right. I, I mean, the, the inconvenient thing is huge. Like people who are sociologists who study this thing very closely and, and you know, I think an excellent work they point out that the routine interactions of every day orients you, not the people that you reach out to once in a month or once every mm. third year, you mm-hmm. know. That's right. really important to keep in mind here, right? I mean, you you and, and I probably spend, I don't know, most of our waking hours with people who we're not terribly close to. But it doesn't mean that we can't have a positive community experience in those places. Um, we, but we have to build that. Yes. It's, it's incumbent on us to make that the way that it is. Right. And I think even more so it's incumbent on us to keep our friendships alive. Yeah. Um, Technology is not going to do that for us. 
the community isn't going to do that for us. And a lot of times our romantic partners are directly interfering with that because they're like, hey, what about me? Yeah, yeah. Jason's <laughs> time with me. So, you know, I would say practically speaking, we want to think of this as kind of a, a two-part a two-part thing. One part has to do with infrastructure, community, all that kind of thing. And the second part has to do with personalization of relationships. Mm. And the personalization of relationship stuff, I think, is also inconvenient uh, for similar reasons as the infrastructure isn't there, but even more so requires intentional action. Right. Yeah, and that's a key word. I think you're right, being being intentional. And uh, I was telling someone earlier, um, they were asked, a, a newlywed couple of friends of mine, uh, we're talking about how, how do you and your wife make time for each other? I said, we actually have to put it on the calendar. And uh, they thought right. that was really trite and mechanical. And I said, trust me, when you have a couple of kids and soccer and karate and baseball and blah, 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 if you don't if you don't be intentional and put it on the calendars, it's not going to happen. You can think it's mechanical if you want, but <laughs> that's the way you have oh, to I do it. <laughs> I completely agree. I don't think it's mechanical. I think it's prudent. You know, and I think the other thing, too, about it is that it, it to, to say that seems silly that you'd have to do that kind of is almost like a head in the sand problem. You know, you don't yeah. want to stick your head in the sand and, and go, oh, I'm sure that the busyness will let up. Mm. Right? That's not happening. Right. That's it's, right. It's not like it's going anywhere. Um, but it surely is the case that your elementary and middle schools may be asking you to go to more events and more fundraisers and more PTA this and your, you know, your kid's martial arts school now asks you to come three days a week and come to the special event and do this and that and volunteer your time. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, my entire life is swallowed by all of these things. And that doesn't even include work. Mm, that's right. That doesn't that's even right. include work. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we've been uh, speaking today with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hall. He's a professor of communication study at the University of Kansas. And uh, Dr. Hall, if somebody just uh, thought, wow, man, I want to get in touch with, if they want to get in touch with you to learn more about this whole issue, uh, what's a good way for them to reach out and get in touch with you? Uh, well, I'm, I... Here at the University of Kansas, you can always email me at hallj at ku.edu if you have any questions. But uh, yeah, I'm always interested to hear what people think. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Jack Eason Podcast. Be sure to check out the website for blogs, videos, and more help on the issues of loneliness, friendship, and community. To get updates on the release of Jack's new book from Ravel Publishing, sign up for an email alert at jackeason.org.